You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Second Timothy chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse 16. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. What we're looking at here this evening is the last couple of verses of chapter 3, and then we'll make our way all the way through chapter 4. And, and this gets towards the end, of course, of Paul's letter to Timothy. And you might expect that the closer we get to the end of this letter, just the more deeply heartfelt it is. You're going to see that as we take a look at this section here this evening. But I want to set the stage with first is to have you understand that as we begin at verse 16, Paul is continuing a thought that begins at least at at verse 14, I should say. You, You could even trace a little bit further back. But in verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, But you must continue in these things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Paul's whole heart here for Timothy is, Timothy, you must continue on in the things that I poured into you. And in the following verses, Paul's going to detail so many of the reasons why Timothy must continue in those things and what some of those things were that he must continue in. But I I just kind of want to call your attention to this idea of the emphasis on continuing in these things. Simply to say this, that so many times in the Christian world, it's just assumed people will continue. No, you, you start off focused on, on God as he's revealed in the word. You, you focus on solid doctrine, solid understanding of God and his work. You, you begin to, and sometimes Christians have a way of just assuming that we'll continue in all those things. Well, I want you to understand what, what Paul indicates here to Timothy, his trusted associate, is that you just don't take it for granted. You, you need to encourage and exhort And admonish one another to continue in these things. And one of the things that Timothy was to continue in was this very high view of the scriptures, the the, the writings, the Bible itself. That's where we come to verse 16, where we're really going to begin with some focus. Okay, so just remember, this is in the broader context of the things to continue in. Verse 16 now, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. First of all, I'm fascinated by that phrase Paul uses in verse 16 where he says, all scripture. And this is what fascinates me about this. is just a verse before Paul had made a reference to the scriptures that um, Timothy grew up with. Look at that in verse 15. Verse 15 says, and that you have known from childhood, or from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. Now look, let's understand this. When Paul referred to the holy scriptures in verse 15, what was he referring to? What we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. The law and the prophets. This is what he was referring to. Timothy grew up learning 
what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets, this is what he grew up with. But I want you to understand, when he uses the phrase in verse 16, he deliberately uses a broader idea. In other words, at verse 16, he didn't say those scriptures, the ones I just referred to in verse 15, nor did he say the scriptures, he said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now let me tell you why I think Paul used that very deliberate formulation. It was because Paul was aware that God was doing something amazingly unique in his day and that was bringing forth new scripture. Paul understood that. Do you understand that Paul understood as well as others inspired writers of the Holy Spirit it was understood that new scripture was being brought forth among the apostles and prophets of that time. You see, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 refers to the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the church being built upon that. And I don't have any doubt in my own mind what that foundation of the apostles and prophets is. It's the revelation given to us in the New Testament. This is the foundation of the apostles and prophets given to us, mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Now, this doesn't surprise us that new scripture would begin forth. And by the way, let's not just count this as an assumed, as a given. There had been 400 years before the time that the New Testament began to be established that there was no new scripture being given forth. And if somebody were to try to come along to me today and say, I'm writing new scripture, man, I'd I'd back off. I'd put a cross before him. I might get out the garlic. It's just not happening. It is not happening, new scripture, but there was something unique happening and they were aware of it. That's why Paul didn't just say those scriptures or the scripture, he said all scripture. Paul understood that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would speak to his inspired apostles and prophets in that first generation and guide them into all truth. Now, I find it fascinating that Paul understood that what they were bringing forth in that foundational generation was scripture. Do you understand that Paul commanded the public congregational reading of his letters? You can find that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27, where Paul said, read my letters in the congregation. Do you understand that, that coming from a Jewish context of the synagogue, you just didn't write, read the writings of anybody. What did you read in congregational proclamation? You read the scriptures. Paul said, you read my letters in the congregation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse, excuse me, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, Paul called his own message the word of God. Isn't that remarkable? And then in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, Paul combines a quotation from the Old Testament and some words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 and he called both of them scripture. Paul looked at his writings and said scripture. Paul looked at the Gospel of Luke and said scripture. And Paul wasn't alone. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it indicates the same idea Peter included Paul's writings among what was considered scripture. And I don't know about you, but I find this somewhat fascinating. Don't you wonder sometimes, 
Did Paul know that he was writing scripture? And, and this is what I can tell you. At least some of the time he did. I, I can't tell you Paul was aware everything he wrote. But some of the stuff that he wrote, don't you think that when Paul wrote Romans, he said, man, this is something greater than I. That it was Paul's personality, it was Paul's words, but the Holy Spirit so breathed into him and breathed through him that what he produced was something absolutely inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul understood. And I don't know if he understood about all of his writings, but they understood at least in some terms what was coming forth was Scripture. They understood this in apostolic times. That's why Paul could say, look back at verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Listen, Timothy, you need to continue in the Bible because it's given by God and not by man. It's a God-inspired book. It's breathed out from God itself. That's the sense of the ancient Greek word that we translate inspiration of God. It speaks of God breathing out his word. Now, what we're saying here is it's something more than saying that God inspired the men who wrote scripture. No, what they wrote was inspired by God. And that's such a high and important view to understand that the words they wrote were breathed by God. Now listen, I got to admit that in this day and age, that is a radical thing to say. And many people would tell you that that's a dangerous thing to say. Look, let, let me just be straight with you. People look in the world today, secular people look in the world today, and they say anybody who regards a book as the word of God is a dangerous freak and fanatic. They look at what happens in the Muslim world. And what happens in the Muslim world when Muslims take their holy book and think it's really breathed of God and, and that what it says they should do, people end up dead. They say, see, it's going to be the same things for Christians. But let me tell you something. Anybody who reads the Bible and understands it, anybody who reads the Old Testament and the New Testament and lives it, they're not going to become a more violent person. They're going to become a more loving person. Now, there have been people who have done violent things in the name of Christianity, but they have not been acting according to this book. They've been acting in contradiction to it. They've not been rightly dividing the word of truth. No, instead, we found a foundation, we find, I should say, a foundation for our faith in understanding that this is the word of God. And, and I understand that makes us look sometimes like freaks, sometimes like fanatics, sometimes like fools in the face of the world. But I'm just here to take, this is the word of God. And I've got a thought, I don't know, I... I, I've never talked to a serious skeptic about this idea of mine. I've never been, I mean, I'd be interested in what a serious skeptic would say to this. But I just can say, okay, you, you think the Bible is, is foolish. You think it's dangerous. You think it's just the product of some Bedouin shepherds who lived anywhere from two to 4,000 years ago. You think it's all this. Then here's my just, here's a simple suggestion. Write something better. I mean, you're plenty smart, aren't you? You know more than a Bedouin shepherd from 
two and a half thousand years ago. Just do it. Just you go write something from the Bible. And just do it. Write something that, that will bring more healing and grace and peace to people's life than this book. You just go ahead and write something with more profound wisdom than this book. You, you write something with more insight, not only to the human personality, but revealing the divine. Just write it. It should be easy for any modern person to do so. But you know what the situation Nobody can. There is the stamp of the divine about this book. Because why? Because it is inspired by God. It is impossible for anybody to write something comparable to the Bible. I love what it says in the book of Isaiah that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Who can compare anything to the Bible? What is the chaff to the wheat? There's nothing that compares. Now, this book is given by inspiration of God. And I'll tell you what I can do in a very objective way. I'm not going to take the time to do it here this evening. In a very objective way, I could prove to you tonight that this book, for example, there's no book that has had the same impact on the world that this book has had. I can tell you that there's no book um, that is as honest of the failings of its leaders. I can tell you that there's no book that has been so attacked, yet so firmly established. I can tell you that there's been no book that's been so criticized, yet so strong in the face of criticism. Those are all very objective things that can measure. But you say, David, can you actually prove to me that this is the word of God? And some kind of objective proof, not something that just all you church people believe. Is there some way you could prove to me that this book, and I tell you the best way that I could prove to you that this book is the word of God is by the phenomenon of what we call predictive prophecy. Peter spoke of it. He said, we have God's word made more sure, which shines as a light in a dark place. And he said it specifically in reference to fulfilled prophecy. In other words, when this book tells us about the coming of the Messiah, and the Messiah comes just as was prophesied anywhere from 500 to 1,000 to 2,000 years previously, it wakes us up and we say, there's something here to pay attention to. And there's prophecy after prophecy, truth after truth revealed. And it's a way of God communicating to us that the author of this book lives outside of the domains of time and space. What you and I consider us to bind us by time and space. What I can't know tomorrow or next year, someone outside this time domain, he knows. And so he can write about it ahead of time as if it has already happened. This phenomenon of predictive prophecy is very persuasive. And it's one of the greatest proofs we have of this dramatic statement that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, if we really believe this, then we should give our attention to God's word. I I need to be careful here. Lately, it's been very, very much on my heart that we live in a time, we live in a generation where so many Christians just simply don't read their Bible. 
There used to be a time in the Christian world where the dominant church in Christendom, the, the one that kind of had a monopoly on things, and some of you will remember this from your growing up, the dominant church that had a monopoly on the religious world at the time, this was their message to the common Christian. They said this, don't read the Bible. The priest will read the Bible and tell you what it means. But don't you read the Bible. Now you and I as good Protestants, you know, that gets us going, doesn't it? Don't you tell me not to read the Bible. You know, I'm going to, you know, we just, yeah, that's, that's not going to, but listen, let me tell you something. This is my fear in modern Christianity is functionally it has become that in our own churches. That people walk into church and they basically say, I'm not going to read the Bible through the week. I'll let that man up there read the Bible and tell me what it means. Now, this is very much on my heart. You know, I'm just thinking about how I can speak to this in our present age. This is one of these things, one of these messages that I think is just kind of percolating in my heart over weeks and months and probably years and such. But here's the point of it, is that one thing I'm very aware of is, is what people don't need to read their Bible more is more guilt. And isn't it easy to throw a lot of guilt on people for not reading their Bible? So my purpose isn't to do that here this evening. My purpose isn't to make you feel as guilty as possible for not reading your Bible enough. But I do just want to call our attention to this. If we really believed that this was the word of God, we'd probably act a little bit differently towards it. Whatever's wrong in our thinking or our action about this book, it probably comes back in some way to not really believing. I mean, we might believe it as an idea, but not as a truth. That this is the word of God. So, yes, read your Bible. Read it more. I'm, I'm not throwing a guilt trip on you. But just understand, this is God's word. And how much of it is God's word? I love how Paul phrased it there in verse 16. How much scripture? All scripture. The great Greek scholar named Dean Alford, he wrote a wonderful commentary on the Greek text of the entire New Testament. Dean Alford understood this as meaning every part of Scripture. That's what he means by all Scripture. And that's what's given to you. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and, look at how it continues in verse 16, and is profitable. Timothy, you need to continue... Teaching the word of God, not only because it is the word of God, but also because it is profitable. It works. And notice how he says it's profitable. He gives a wonderful list here in verse 16. It's profitable for doctrine. The Bible tells us what's true about God, about man, about the world we live in, about the world to come. The Bible is true. It's profitable about doctrine. And then he says... It's profitable for reproof and correction. Brothers and sisters, this book has the right to tell me I'm wrong. You know what? Well, that's kind of a hearty amen back there. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. I'll tell you what, too. This book has the right to tell who else is wrong. You. This book has the right to tell each and every one of us. Let me tell you something, the preacher included, or maybe I should say the preacher especially, it has the right to tell us that we're wrong. And we need to understand that. 
It's profitable for, for reproof and correction. When the Bible shows me I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But it's also profitable for what? For instruction in righteousness. It tells us how to live in an unrighteous world. And then it's also profitable in every part because this indicates we can understand the Bible. Look, this is one of the fundamental truths we believe about the Bible is that it's a book that can be understood. I'm not trying to say that every aspect, every nuance is open, but in general, the Bible is something that can be understood by spiritually alive men and women. Not that we're never going to need teachers, not not that we can understand every single nuance or aspect, but in general, it can be understood. Let me say one more thing about the profitability of the Bible. We understand that the Bible is profitable because we understand it literally. Now again, I I think often of what my words up here would sound like to just completely secular stranger walking in the church and sitting here this evening. I, I wonder how those words, and I'll tell you, for somebody who has the completely secular mindset of our culture today, for them to hear me say that we should understand the Bible literally, they'd probably gasp. They'd think, what kind of lunatic group have I walked in among here this evening? They understand the Bible literally. And brother and sister, let me just say this. Of course we understand it literally. How else are we to understand? But let me say this. I need to clarify this. When we say we understand the Bible literally... We mean we understand it according to its literary context. So when the Bible describes history, it's true history. When the Bible describes or speaks in the terms of poetry, it's true poetry. When the Bible speaks in the prophetic uh, wording and such, it's true prophecy. You see, we need to understand that the Bible will use figures of speech and poetic hyperbole and understanding it literally doesn't mean that we take those necessarily seriously. What one great example is uh, David the psalmist in one of the psalms. I should have chapter and verse in front of me, but I don't. In one of the psalms, David said this. He said, I made my bed swim with tears. Now, does anybody think that David said that he cried so much that he actually floated his mattress in his bedroom? You know, and you do the calculations, you know, an engineer-minded person among us would say, well, listen, that's got to take at least 400 gallons of water, and the, the physical body's not capable of shedding that many tears. And, but, you know, sometimes a person has this kind of illness they can do. Now, anyway, on and on, you see. But yet, we understand That taking David literally, understanding him literally, isn't understanding that what he said was he floated his bed in an ocean. He cried a lot. Okay, we get it. He cried a lot. So so we do understand the Bible literally. And all that means is true according to its literary context. And we have no problem understanding the Bible as true according to to its literary context. And then the benefit of it, look at verse 17. That 
the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Timothy, stay close to your Bible because it will be your complete instruction. Now, I need to point this out because there are times when some people get a disjointed perspective of the Bible and its place in the Christian life. The Bible makes us complete in our Christian life, but nobody should think that the entire Christian life is just about Bible study. Like that's the only thing that's important in the Christian life. Do you know how I know that Bible study is not the only important thing in the Christian life? Because the Bible tells me that Bible study isn't the only important thing in the Christian life. The Bible tells me that prayer has a big part, that worship has a big part, that evangelism has a big part, that sharing life together, what we call koinonia or fellowship, that that has a big part, that living a godly life in the present age, that all of those have important perspectives. So no, we don't want to get off into sort of the reductionism that would say that the only important thing in the, uh, in, in the Christian life is Bible study, even though we believe it obviously has a, a major role. But even the reason why we believe other aspects of the Christian life are important is we believe it because the Bible itself tells us so. So we don't ignore prayer. We don't ignore worship. We don't ignore evangelism or good works in a needy world because the Bible itself tells us that we need to reach out and to be a part of those very things. Now, continuing on now into verse 1 of chapter 4. And here we sense Paul really getting ready for a conclusion to his letter. He says, verse four, verse one of chapter four, I should say. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Well, we're stopping sort of in the middle of a sentence, but it's a powerful sentence there, isn't it? You know, Paul has spoken about some of the most important and weighty things in the Christian life. In the two verses that we just studied, which make up the end of chapter 3 in our Bibles, verses 16 and 17, Timothy, you, you better remember that it is the inspired word of God. That this book just, just doesn't contain the words of God. It is the word of God. And that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Timothy, don't ever lose that. And we sense that after sort of exhausting that important thought as a string of many important thoughts, then in verse 1 of chapter 4, it's as if he has to charge Timothy all over again. Listen, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead in the presence of that very God, in the mindful of his appearing, of his kingdom. You can feel the weight kind of building here. And look, I don't want to get all emo or over-sentimental about this. But, but, but do you think it's crazy to think that as Paul wrote this, there's a tear welling up in his eye? starting to roll down his face. And, without trying to get overly sentimental, don't, don't you think it's entirely possible that when Timothy 
got this and read it. Could he possibly read this with dry eyes? This was his mentor, his friend, his guide. The apostle, the man who took him and laid hands on him and put him into ministry and gave him so much. Paul, you've given me this charge. You've given me such a solemn charge. It's as if you've come and you're presenting this charge in the presence of Jesus Christ and in the glory of all of his appearance. Paul, what is it that you're going to tell me? Look at verse 2. This is what he charges Timothy with. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Timothy, brother, friend, understand it. I'm not for this world much longer. When I go, continue what I've taught you. Preach the word. Now, I spoke just a moment ago about people who I think misunderstand the place of the Bible in the Christian life and in church ministry, people who act as if Bible study is the only important thing. Did I lay that out clear enough? Do we understand? Bible study is not the only important thing in the Christian life. But can we deny that it is very important? Do you see the emphasis Paul has here? I mean, again and again, he's drawing Timothy back towards this. And I have to say, I have to say, look, I understand. And I hope you guys can capture my heart when I say this. I understand that there are other traditions in Christianity. People who I believe are my brothers and sisters. And they have sort of a church life and approach to church meetings that um, is maybe more liturgical, more ceremonial, more this. And listen, if they truly and in truth and in spirit meet Jesus in that, that's fine. But I say, brothers and sisters, give me the word. Give me God's word. We'll meet with God and we'll fellowship with him in, in this whole ambiance of, of, of the proclamation of the word. I, I just want you to notice how prominent Paul makes it. Preach the word. Matter of fact, when should you preach it? Notice it. Be ready in season and out of season. There's only two seasons that we should be preaching the word. word in season and out of season. Other than that, don't do it. Listen, I've taken that verse so many times to be an encouragement to myself and an encouragement to other pastors and Bible teachers that I have a chance to interact with because sometimes it feels, look, I'll just be very honest with you, sometimes it feels that people who truly long to preach the world, and look, I'm not saying that this is a true feeling. I'm just saying that it's a feeling we have. Sometimes we who long to preach the word feel like we're dinosaurs, Sometimes we feel like nobody cares or so few people care. That that we live in not just a world, but we live in a Christian generation where everybody's so consumed with the latest and greatest, the brightest and the loudest, that just preaching the word, people respond to that with a great big ho-hum. And I've had to speak to that in myself and I've got to speak to it in a lot of people who, who, who do that. And this is what I tell them, I said, listen, Remember the charge of Paul to Timothy. We are to preach the word in season and out of season. 
You preach the word when things are cranking and people are getting saved and lives are transformed and it's hopping and it's great. You preach the word then, but you know what? When it seems dry and dead and nothing's happening and nobody's there, what's going on? You preach the word then. You do it in season, you do it out of season. Now look, I'm the first one to admit, in season is a lot more fun. Right on. Put me down for in season. But we didn't sign up for this to just do it in season. But we said, no, God helping us will preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. We'll use the words of God to convince, rebuke, exhort. We'll do it with all long suffering and teaching. I love that. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Look at that at the end of verse two. With all long suffering and teaching. Teaching means you're actually gonna teach them from the Bible how to live. You're not just nagging people. Don't do that. No, stop doing that. Don't do that. No, you're teaching them. You're not nagging them, but you're doing it really with this wonderful scriptural basis and support. And why? Look at verses three and four. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers And they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Timothy needed to remain focused on the word of God because man, by his own natural instinct, there's something in us, we don't want God's revelation. Do you realize that there's something in our fallen, broken humanity that says to God, shut up and stay away from me. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden when they knew they were naked? They hid from God. They, they should have ran into his arms. But they hid from God. And there's something in our fallen, broken humanity we've been hiding ever since. And that's why, oftentimes, Despite our best interests, we're running after these things with itching ears. Now, that being said, and look, I don't think it's a, it's a great thing for a, uh, a speaker to uh, flatter his listeners. But there's something really good about you guys here that you're here on a Wednesday night. Do, do you realize that each one of us in our natural fallenness and brokenness we don't want to hear what God says the fact that you're here tonight and you do want to hear what God says that says something really wonderful about the work that God's doing in your life it's like everyone should just be in here listen even if you're going to hear half of what I say tonight and the other half you're drifting you're too tired from the day I'll never forget what somebody said to Spurgeon. Somebody was talking to Charles Spurgeon. They would come to Spurgeon's midweek service and they were just so tired from the day at work. He said, he said, Pastor Spurgeon, all I get is half of what you preach. And Spurgeon laughed and he said, half a loaf of bread is better than none. Amen to that. Amen to that. But listen, just the fact that you're here on a Wednesday night. And you say, I want something from God's word. I don't know if the pastor can deliver it to me tonight, but I want it. Bring me something from God's word. Show me something. That says something wonderful about God's work in your life. It says something wonderful about not having, as Paul describes it, 
itching ears. Verse 3 again, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Brothers and sisters, one of the tough things about having so many itching ears is there's more than a few preachers who are willing to scratch those itching ears. And again, instead of presenting God's word and letting that stand front and center, they're finding a way to draw the attention to themselves. I am very grateful that in the broader Christian world today, I think there's more and more of a serious examination. I don't know if it's entirely serious, but at least there's a more and more serious examination of the phenomenon that we might call the celebrity pastor. You know, we, we, we don't need the celebrity pastor. We need the workmen that have the word of God who will preach the word in season and in out of season. And I will say this, I don't think that just because God has raised a man to prominence means he has the heart of a celebrity pastor. More so, I would hope that God would raise that man to prominence because he is a simple workman who wants to do the work in season and out of season and be opposite to what it says here in verse four, the danger of being turned aside to fables. Isn't it interesting that when people leave the word of God, they'll often embrace the most fantastic fantasies. Understand this, when a man rejects God's truth, it doesn't mean that he believes in nothing. It means he'll believe in anything. And that's the story of our culture today. In so many corners, having abandoned God's truth, it's not that we believe less, it's just that we believe crazier things in our culture today. Verse five. But you, in other words, in contrast to those who would scratch itching ears, in contrast to those who would follow after fables, verse five, but you be watchful in all things, Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Boy, I just look at verse five and I hadn't really thought about it this way until just reading it right now. I thought, what what a beautiful four-point message for a pastor's conference, is it not? What, What a thing for a pastor, any servant of God needs to hear. What do you need to hear first of all? He says, you be watchful in all things. You better pay attention. You shouldn't be leading God's people, teaching his word, or serving his people with your eyes closed. You got to pay attention. You need to be watchful in all things. That's first. Secondly, endure afflictions. It's not, um, it's interesting over the years, having spoken to many men and women who have so looked forward to entering into what we call, and I don't like this terminology, so don't, don't, don't pin this terminology on me. I'm not responsible for it, but I just think you'll get it. We're going into full-time ministry. Look, I think every believer is called a full-time ministry, but what people usually mean by that phrase is they go into the ministry as a paid occupation. That becomes their vocation. And having spoken to many men and women over many decades about their excitement, I'm going into paid ministry. It's going to be my job. I'm going to be in full-time ministry. And then almost invariably, a month or two ended, they're incredibly disillusioned because it's hard. 
Man, they just thought it was like going to be picking spiritual daffodils all the time. And everything was just going to be wonderful. Oh, isn't it beautiful? We just go from one level of glory to the next. Isn't it great? We're just on clouds all the time. What does Paul say? He looks at Timothy and says, listen, you better endure affliction. That's the attitude you need to go into it. Now, look, I, I, I fully agree. You, you, you can twist it the other way. And sometimes I hear, they're talking all doom and gloom. And and a personal annoyance to me is sometimes I feel like pastors feel like, well, you know, I really got it tough. You guys all have it easy. Come on, everybody has their own challenges in life. We understand that, we get that. But, but, I will say this. There are a few unique afflictions that God appoints his servants and his messengers to bear. And you you just got to factor that in. And be in for that. So, notice it. Be watchful in all things. Pay attention. Endure affliction. Do the work in evangelism. I love that phrase. What he was exhorting Timothy. And the idea of the sense here is, Timothy, I know you are not by nature an evangelist. You're by nature a teacher of God's word. Okay, that's great. But do the work in evangelism. Find a way to do the work in evangelism. And I don't know how that's going to work out for each individual pastor. But I'd give that exhortation to every pastor. Look, pastor, you may feel your teaching, your preaching gifts are mostly for God's people and to build them and encourage them. Praise the Lord. Just find some way, the way God would appoint you to do, to do the work of an evangelist as well. And then, what's he say? Fulfill your ministry. Man, I love that phrase. Fulfill your ministry. At the end of it all, and I'll just speak as someone who, uh, who has given his life in service to God, his people. And that, look, w- whenever my end comes, whenever I find myself in something of Paul's place, even though, listen, I'll be honest, I do not expect to end my life in martyrdom. I don't think it's impossible, but I don't expect to. But there's gonna come a day where I'm too weak for the work or my death is impending. Listen, I wanna be able to look back and say, Lord, I gave it my all for your glory. I fulfilled my ministry. I didn't leave things lacking, but I put it all in. That was Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Because he says, look at verses six and seven. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Come on, these words tug at your heart, don't they? Here's an old man. And when I say old, I'm not talking about years. Paul was probably in his 60s. Which, you know, look, I I mean, back then it was older than it is now. But even back then, it's not ancient. Okay, even back then. Paul's probably in his late 50s, early 60s. But understand this with Paul. For Paul, it wasn't the years. It's just like some used cars. It's not the years, it's the mileage. That's what it was for Paul, right? Man, it was the mileage. That, That man lived the life and did the ministry of five men, if not more. So here's an old, in some ways physically speaking, he's probably a bit broken down. He's in a cold prison, so he doesn't have enough food to eat. There's danger of violence from other prisoners around him. He's cold. He's worried. He's worried about how Timothy and the churches are doing. But at the end of it all, he puts his pen to the parchment and he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Do you get the idea of that? 
a drink offering when it was brought before the Lord. And look, even though this cup is filled with water, I'm not going to pour it out. But what a drink offering would be is it would be poured out as this cup full of water would be poured out. And the whole idea was you poured it out completely. That was the idea. You didn't take a drink offering and pour half the cup. It was all of it. And Paul said, I've given it my all. I've laid it all out. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. By the way, it's fascinating how many times in the scriptures Paul used the picture of the race being an illustration of the Christian life. Philippians chapter 3, Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians 9, Hebrews 12, if Paul indeed did write Hebrews. Again and again in the scriptures, you have this idea of the Christian life being like a race by an athletic contest. That's why Paul can say, I finished the race. It's back again and again. I finished the race. Now verse 8, finally there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me also but also of all those who have loved his appearing. The end of it all, Paul says, I know there's a crown for me. Now look, sometimes it's a dangerous thing to try to read thoughts into the mind of an author. But can you let me do that just for a moment with Paul? When Paul said, I know that a crown is raiding for me, the ancient Greek word that he used that's translated crown is a stephanos. A stephanos is a crown of victory. It's it's, um, distinguished between the diadem. In, In the ancient Greek language, they made a distinction between the crown that a king wears, the crown of royalty, and the crown of victory, the crown that an athlete wears. The crown that an athlete wore was a was a Stephanos. Do you know whose prayers were most directly connected with bringing Paul into the kingdom? This man was the first martyr of the Christian church. The man whose martyrdom Paul officially supervised. His name was Stephen or Stephanos. And I just wonder if Paul made connections like that in his mind. A a man representing that crown was used of God to bring me into the kingdom. And now at the end of it, I wonder if Paul figured... I'm going to see Stephan and receive my Stephanos. And it'll come full circle. This crown that God has for all of his winners, all of his champions. Verse 9. And here, you know, I talked about this section being heart-tugging. How about this? Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful for me, for ministry. And Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. And the books, especially the parchments. Verse 9, I I can't help but get a little worked up. Be diligent to come to me quickly. Timothy, please, hurry. I need you here. Timothy, get on the first boat you can and make your way to Rome. Timothy, 
I'm lonely. Listen, we, we honor the Apostle Paul as a man of God, do we not? But he was a man. He was not a superman. He's not, I'm alone in my prison cell and I don't care. I don't need anybody. No, he's writing to Timothy with his heart out. Be diligent to come to me quickly. Timothy, please, I miss you. And then he talks about the people who forsook him. Demas has forsaken me. Other people uh, love this present world. Who does he mention there? He says Demas, Crescens. Other people left him for good reasons, like Titus. Others left him because they were sent, like Tychicus. And then he says, verse 11, only Luke is with me. I sometimes wonder if I'm going to ask Luke about this in heaven. Luke, doesn't seem like Paul appreciated your companionship very much. But for whatever, maybe Luke was busy with a lot of other things, but Paul couldn't have enough attention from Luke as he desired. So he says this, did you see this in verse 11? Get Mark and bring him with you. You know, sometimes the little throwaway lines of the Bible have so much behind them that you just kind of go, whoa. Because this Mark is no doubt John Mark, from whom Paul had a very difficult and awkward parting in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, Paul, John Mark, and Barnabas were heading on their way in a missionary journey. And for whatever reason, there was a parting. Paul wanted to go a certain way. Barnabas and John Mark didn't. They said, nope, then you go your way. We're going to go ours. And apparently there was like some tension between them. The Bible describes it as a very vigorous dispute among them. There was a parting of the ways and it was awkward. But here at the end of Paul's life, he goes, you know what? That Mark guy, I love him. He's valuable for me. I love it that Paul was not a man to hold on to a grudge forever. Look, there's people who wound us. The fact that you're wounded, the fact that you have something against somebody, okay, we get that. But, but I, I, think, I think a real measure of our Christian maturity is how long are you going to hold on to it? How long? Hasn't it been long enough already? For Paul, there was an expiration date on all that. And he had reached that expiration date long before that. Look, I also love what it says in verse 13. Did you see that? Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Now, you know what's fascinating about that? This probably means that Paul was arrested at Troas. By the way, I've been to Troas. We went there on a Footsteps of Paul tour that we took once. And having been at Troas, I tell you, I was so stirred because Troas is, first of all, notable for being the place where Paul left the continent of Asia to sail across the water to go over to, I guess that's the Aegean Sea, to go across the Aegean Sea over to Greece. He left Asia and went to Europe for the first time. The gospel left Asia and went to Europe from Troas. And to just sit there where this ancient harbor of Troas was. It was right this. When Paul took, he saw those mountains off in the distance. This is what it was like. I tell you, it was an amazing experience. That's not the only thing. Later, Paul apparently came back to Troas and it's probably where he was arrested. Why? Because he says he left his cloak with this fellow there. What was the fellow's name? He said he left his name with Carpus there at Troas. 
here's probably the thing. There was a law in the Roman law book at that time that said when Roman soldiers arrested a prisoner, the Roman soldiers could take his excess clothing and divide it among themselves. Paul probably got wind of the fact that he would be arrested. And he's looking at this extra cloak that he has, and he goes, well, I don't want a Roman soldier to get it. I'll give it to my friend, and maybe I can get it later. Now, we're not certain of this, but it's an entirely plausible scenario. So now Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, on your way, when you're making your way from Ephesus, and you're going to take off from trust, you get that cloak and you bring it to me. I think you could preach a pretty good sermon on that cloak left in Troas. You know, it tells us a lot. Here's some points I wrote down. Number one, it tells us that Paul gave up everything he had to serve Jesus. He didn't even have a proper coat at the end. Secondly, it says that Paul was almost completely forsaken by his friends. I mean, honestly, I I don't know why, but there had to be some reason why he couldn't just say to Luke, hey, Luke, can you get me a cloak? Next, Paul had a very independent mind. He wasn't going to beg the Romans for a cloak. Fourth, Paul did not care very much about how he was dressed. He didn't say, listen, um, you got to bring me a selection of three or four cloaks because I don't know what I'm going to be wearing or anything like that. Paul didn't care that much about it. No, he was a very simple man. But it also shows us, finally, that Paul was an ordinary man with ordinary needs. Uh, He got cold, and he wanted the cloak. And, notice the end of verse 13, the books, especially the parchments. Oh, bring me those. I want to study. I want to read. That's near and dear to my heart. God bless you, Paul, for saying that, that you want the books and the parchments. Verses 14 and 15, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. That's a very um, significant warning. Timothy, don't forget, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, what he's telling Timothy. And Timothy, this guy might seem fine to you, but you be careful of him. Notice the warning You must beware of him. He's greatly resisted our words. And sometimes there's a tendency for for a guy like Timothy to come in and say, listen, I know Alexander was a hassle for Paul, but I'll win him over. And might I say, sometimes that works, but oftentimes not. Paul says, you beware of this fellow. And then verse 16. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, if Paul was shedding a tear, he just set those tears aside. He's getting worked up all over again. 
He's getting just filled with that, that anticipation. Look, I know that nobody stood with me, verse 16, but look at verse 17, but the Lord stood with me. And again, this wonderful absence of bitterness, he says, may it not be charged against them. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a great prayer for us to pray as we grow older. Are you like me? You, you look in the mirror and you go, ooh, that guy in the mirror, it's getting, he's getting older. Listen, a good prayer for us to pray as we grow older is, Lord, preserve me from bitterness. Deliver me from bitterness when I get older. You ever met a bitter old person? It's awful, isn't it? Awful. Just terrible. And listen, Paul had been, had been burned a lot. And you know what he says to all those people who burned him? He says, may the Lord not charge it against you. Man, that's, that's what we want as our years go on. But he remembers, listen, God delivered me out of the mouth of the lion before. He could do it again if he wants to. It's as if Paul's saying, I, I don't think God will deliver me from this, but I know he could if he wanted to. He's done it before. Verse 18, to him be glory forever and ever. And then just the last few verses here, verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus, I've been to Miletus sick. I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. You know, this shows how much people meant to Paul. He's just checking off, say, say hi to this person, that person. But even just in this very kind of mundane listing of names, do you see what he says about this guy Trophimus in verse 20? Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do you realize that that tells us something very important about the Apostle Paul? Do you believe that God wrought miracles through the Apostle Paul? I hope you do because the Bible says he did. God wrought miracles through the Apostle Paul. But nobody should think that Paul had miraculous power like at his fingertips. Like he could just go, oh, I want to heal that person. (laughs) Heal him. It didn't work like that. No, God used Paul to miraculously heal people, but only when it was the will of God, and usually God indicating to Paul that it was his will. One way we know this, because he left Trophimus and Miletus sick. Do you think Paul walked away from Trophimus and said, dude, I could heal you, but I don't want to. No, this was his friend. It's not as if the miracles that were done in the New Testament were done at the will and at the command of those. And those who purport to be able to do a miracle today at their own will or command, it's bogus. That's not how God does it. God works miracles, God be praised, but at his time, through his vessels, as he chooses. Nobody has that power resident within them. So I cannot just wave my hand over the crowd and impart a miracle to them. That's not how it works. It's certainly not how it worked with Paul. Verse 21. Do your utmost to come before winter. Timothy, I don't think I'm going to make it through the winter. 
you need to come before. Please. Paul's imprisonment in the Mamertine prison. That Mamertine prison was reportedly built about a hundred years before Paul's imprisonment. It was built for the political enemies of Rome. That imprisonment of Paul, it lasted until he was beheaded under Nero outside Rome's Ostian Gate at a place called the Three Fountains. Paul was martyred in the aftermath of the great fires that were set in Rome in A.D. 64. And after which Nero took all that land and used it for his own extensive palace building and urban renewal. It was rumored, and it may very well be true, that the fires were set by Nero himself so that he could take that land away from the the people who lived there. So it's with a special poignancy that we look here at verse 22. Look at Paul's last written words. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. We say the word amen all the time. And we really don't realize that it means something. The Hebrew word amen means so be it. You know, it's like saying right on. Yes. Let's do that. May it be so. Brothers and sisters, that's my prayer for you. May it be so that the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May it be so that grace be with you. That was Paul's final urgent wish for the last communication he had with anybody by letter on this earth. It's God's wish for us is all. So let me bless you with this. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Father, we thank you for this marvelous book of 2 Timothy. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that it truly is given by inspiration, Lord. And we receive that tonight. And we ask, Lord, that the living God of the word would live in our hearts. And Lord, I I pray that you help men like Pastor Tommy and myself and anybody else who, who has a desire to preach and proclaim your word. Lord, help us to do it faithfully in season and out of season. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.